There's a war of ideas being fought for the soul of America. The new film No Safe Spaces takes you to the heart of the battle. Starring Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager, No Safe Spaces is now in theaters. Adam and Dennis take you on a wild ride to show you the effects of political correctness, identity politics, and silencing debate. Hear from leading voices on the right and the left about why free speech is important, how it's being threatened, and what we can do to fight back. No Safe Spaces shows you how to fight back against the forces that are silencing you on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. If you've heard stories about how you can't say certain things because words might offend somebody, this film is for you. No Safe Spaces has a 99% audience approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and Variety calls it smart, vital, urgent, provocative, and witty. Hollywood didn't make this film, and Hollywood doesn't want you to see this film. So let those California libs know why you won't be silenced and see this important film in theaters. We can send a message to Hollywood and mainstream liberals by supporting films like No Safe Spaces in theaters, not to mention it's funny, entertaining, and informative. No Safe Spaces is rated PG-13 and is now in theaters. Go to nosafespaces.com for ticket information and theater locations, No Safe Spaces. Com. Please check it out. Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. We invite you to subscribe to our feed. Anytime there's a new episode, you'll find it. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in, or you can go right to nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast button there. Listen, enjoy, please share, and also leave reviews as well so others can find the program. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner, standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I wish I could say I was doing better, Scott. Um, I'm, I'm actually uh, here in the hospital. I'm, I'm in traction. I, I was playing my guitar, and I, I made this mistake. I, I decided I was going to lift it up over my head and try to play it <laughs> behind my back. And then, what can I say? Everything just locked up. All my joints locked up. Damn, I'm old. And, and you're done with the trip to the dentist from when you tried to play the guitar with the teeth. That w- that's okay now? Uh, you know what? You know what a week of lockjaw feels like. <laughs> Thankfully, I do not. <laughs> no, it's just like you're drinking everything through a straw. Uh, find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD, and we introduce our guest for this program, a returning guest to Political Beat. She is, uh, I believe, different job from last time, but senior politics reporter at Vox, with a focus on the GOP, conservatism, the far right, and white nationalism. You can find her on Twitter at cjane87. Jane Coasted returns to Political Beats. Jane, thanks for joining us once again. Absolutely. Very happy to be back. And our our Nine Inch Nails episode, which we did previously, I'm telling you, is one of the most talked about and discussed episodes of this old podcast that we've ever done. So uh, the audience is is craving uh, more Jane. So we, we had to give it to them. Well, you know, now that Trent Reznor has now won a country (laughs) music award, I think our impact is broad and wide, and I'm excited to see what else we can get done. You know, I'm just so glad that Trent finally won an award in an industry that he has labored in for so long with so little recognition. (laughs) It's true. This was this was just this was a long time coming for him. It's true. He really was the Susan Lucci of country music. <laughs> well, now there's a reference that I think maybe like one one hundredth of our audience will get. 
It's an amazing reference, and I, I regret nothing. No regrets. <laughs> All right. Uh, and our artist, our featured artist today, as you may have picked up from Jeff's uh, introduction, is the one and only Jimi Hendrix. And before we get to Jimi Hendrix and the music and all the stuff that goes along with it, we turn back to Jane, who, uh, for those who did not hear the Nine Inch Nails episode, please give us, Jane, a little description of uh, your job, your beat, and how you ended up in the political ecosystem. So uh, my focus is on conservatism, American conservatism. And, you know, I'm making hand gestures while I say this because I'm great at making podcasts. But my focus (laughs) is on conservatism and the right, which are not always not generally the same thing. The Republican Party and conservatism, which, again, are not often the same thing. And then on white nationalism and the far right, which are sometimes connected to conservatism, but very often not connected to conservatism. And I found my way to conservatism because I've always been interested by the views and politics of the people who are on the opposite side of the spectrum from how I grew up or how I think about things. Um, and I want, I'm always curious with how people get where they are, not just the why or the, you know, the what, but the how. Um, and I thought that that was, you know, that's kind of the explanation I give for how I, you know, got to this point of writing about conservatism. It's because I'm fascinated by movement conservatism, by philosophical conservatism, and just kind of, you know, how conservatism and how conservatives have shaped and reshaped their views and politics. You can read Jane's stuff at Vox and are very active on Twitter as well. Again, see Jane 87 the handle there. And uh, today we gather to talk about Jimi Hendrix. And we turn the floor back over to Jane to tell us uh, why you love Jimi Hendrix so much, how you got into him, and, and why other people should care about this music made a long time ago by Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, Jane, so who is this guy? I mean, I, I really hadn't <laughs> even heard of him before we scheduled the show. I know, I know. I mean... For someone, it's it's funny to me because you mentioned that you know he made music a long time ago, and yet every time I listen to Hendrix, it sounds so new to me. Mm. Partly, it's because the Hendrix estate is going to release his music until probably after even I die, um, <laughs> because the Hendrix. I will say this: the Hendrix family has amazing attorneys and amazing press, and they will just keep going because apparently, you know, he only re- recorded for four years. Mm-hmm or passing away all too soon at the age of 27 in 1970. And yet he apparently did nothing but record. So there are B-sides on top of B-sides. It's just this ongoing flood of music. But, you know, how I got into it is, um, you know, I think a lot of people sometimes joke about dad rock. And when they talk about dad rock, I think a lot of people now, for some reason, tend to, to mean like Bruce Springsteen. Well, the dad rock I grew up on through my actual dad was Hendrix. Stevie Ray Vaughan and Bob Marley. And so, and Stevie Ray Vaughan is basically a, a direct corollary to Jimi Hendrix, yes. someone who probably one of the only other people to play Little Wing with that degree of emotion. Um, R.I.P. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, but, you know, this was, Hendrix was my dad's music, is my dad's music. It is my dad's root. It is pretty much, you know, I've, I've joked with him that, like, th- we're going to play um, Dolly Dagger at his funeral. Like, <laughs> He, that's this is you know the music that shaped him and shaped me and you know as a consequence and so I think for me you know I was surrounded by Hendrix you know I grew up list I thought everyone listened to Hendrix all the time because my parents um, my parents are big music people um, one of the you know 
for being kind of working middle class liberal folks, we had we had, my parents had speakers installed in every room. And so every night when my dad would come home, it would be this big moment of him and my mom choosing what album to listen to. <laughs> and um, sometimes it would be my mom's choice. So we'd listen to like Southern culture on the skids or something. Um, but a lot of time it w- for my dad, it would be Hendrix. Um, you know, that's how I listened to Axis, Bold as Love as many times as I have, but also a lot of, you know, and we'll get into this, but a lot of the posthumous, uh, material as well. But this was, you know, this was something I was bathed in as a, as a child in a sense. And so I think that that's why it's always been so important to me, but also because it is innately timeless. And it's funny because if you go back and listen to, um, I was flying, uh, I went to Australia last week, and that requires being on planes for an extremely long period of time. (laughs) And so I, you know, was watching movies on the flight, and I watched, um, you know, a bunch of things. But, you know, I watched the most recent uh, Quentin Tarantino film. Um, Hang on. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yes. And one of the things about, you know, when people talk about 60s music, uh, which obviously is the basis of that film in a lot of senses. You know, 60s music sometimes sounds direct. Like if you listen to The Kinks or Mamas and the Papas, some of it, sound, you know, I love California Dreamin', but California Dreamin' could only have been made within like a four-year period right. in the history of human civilization. Yeah. Um, but if you listen to like, a, you know, I Don't Live Today or, a, you know, a lot of songs from Electric Ladyland or even Hey Baby or something from First Rays of the New Rising Sun. If you told me someone had come out with that like four or five years ago, I'd be like, OK, I believe it. I think Hendrix was able to, you know, his musical influence has been so broad that perhaps that it's, you know, you can hear elements of, um, you know, Hendrix and a lot of recent music and a lot of, you know, even kind of Brittany Howard and Alabama shakes. You can kind of get that sense as well. But I would also say that unlike a lot of his musical contemporaries and, you know, the Doors or kind of a lot of the people who were around at the same time said there's something about Hendrix's music because it had its own historical root coming so far earlier. You know, this is someone who grew up listening to the blues. This is someone who thinks Muddy Waters is as good as it gets. It itself has a timelessness that a lot of things like that, you know, his music of his time does not have. 
You know who didn't listen to a lot of Jimi Hendrix growing up? Who didn't marinate in it? Who wasn't stewed in it? That's right, me. I wasn't that guy. I mean, to say that I was unaware of Jimi Hendrix would obviously be a complete lie. You can't live life. I mean, I, I even wonder, like, you know, we always talk about the kids these days, right? You know, as we are, you know, old men and women yelling at clouds. But, um, like, I even would say that, like, you can't even be, like, a 16-year-old now and not know at least something about Jimi Hendrix. You've heard Purple Haze. You've heard All Along the Watchtower. Well, I was no different. Of course I heard those. We had the greatest hits, you know? But that was all that we had. And I had to say that back then, you know, when I was getting into my big classic rock phase during the uh, the 1990s, during my high school years, I wasn't a huge Hendrix fan. I didn't go out and get those albums. I didn't go get those albums until college. And I don't know why I can't say why. Maybe there was something about his attack, his approach, that you know it wasn't. It didn't immediately grab me because maybe it was. It had less emphasis on melody, and it was more about you know, mm. blues and mm-hmm. blues and rock based material. That could have played a role in it. But once I finally, you know, again, this is just goes to, to to say something about the kind of person that I am as a music listener, or maybe the kind of all-encompassing importance of Jimi Hendrix as a musician. I said, well, I gotta own these albums for God's sake. What I can't look at myself in the mirror and call myself a fan of music if I don't own at least the first three records. And then I got Are You Experienced? I got Axis. I got Electric Lady Lamb. And then, of course, what did I end up doing? I ended up getting all the rest of them as well. This probably was around my senior year of high school. And then I started listening more and more and harder and harder. And um, the first one to click into place for me was that first album. One of the things that I realized about it is that if you go back, the original United Kingdom, the original album, the one that broke Jimi Hendrix as a phenomenon in England and thus in the world, didn't have any of those famous singles on it at all. Didn't have uh, you know Hey Joe or Purple mm-hmm. Haze or The Wind Cries Mary. Those, those were all non-album singles. And then instead – Everything else that it had on it was equally as flippin' famous. And then you realize that every single thing on this record was good, and the songs that you hadn't heard of were actually even more compelling than the ones that you did know. And then you started exploring like Electric Ladyland, and then you fell into all the deep sonic textures and grooves of that. And then at that point, you know, you go from simply having an arm's length admiration for Jimmy to an absolute love. And it's gotten to the point where he is one of those guys who 
who I can literally just put on at any point and listen to for hours, and I won't get tired of them. I have like six different playlists. I have like my Hendrix Live playlist. I have my Hendrix Studio Chronological playlist. I have everything he ever did in order playlist. I have all those things put together. I can listen to any one of them, and I don't get bored because, you know, as Jane pointed out, like one, God bless it, that he was he's only recording for four years, and it's such a tragedy to think about what we've lost. But he was recording seemingly every single day during those four <laughs> years. And when he wasn't in the studio, he was recording stuff in his hotel rooms on tapes and demos. And we have all that stuff, too. And you know what? You know, people can you know, say, well, the, you know, the, the Hendrix family is you know, really milking it you know, ridiculously by releasing all this stuff. But I'm not going to object. I'm glad I have it all. I'll pay for it. I'll put I'll put my coin down on the barrel for this. It's good stuff. Hendrix just had a natural talent for these things. And the first thing you've got to say about Jimmy is, um, is there anybody who's done more to define the sound of guitar in rock music than Jimi Hendrix? Even in the sense that he negatively defined it. That 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 because Jimi Hendrix became such a dominant figure as a guitarist, people were defined as sounding not like him or having a style that wasn't like Hendrix. It wasn't that fiery pyrotechnical blues based thing. It was like Robert Fripp, you know, who actually was a friend of Jimi Hendrix's, ironically enough, because, you know, they, they knew each other on the British scene. Um, no, Hendrix's guitar sound is sui generis. I remember once when I was in like ninth grade or 10th grade, um, like, you know, our English teacher, for some reason, I can't remember the reason, like, you know, put on a song. She was just like an exercise. She was asking us, like, okay, can you, who, can you tell me who this is? And, of course, it was, I guess, mildly embarrassing and perhaps a warning, an omen of the future that I was the only one who raised their hands. <laughs> I had never heard it. It was like a BBC session or something like that. It was Jimi Hendrix playing Catfish Blues. Wow. And I was just like, like, that's Jimi Hendrix. Of course it's Jimi Hendrix. He yeah. hadn't sung yet. You just hear that guitar tone. Nobody flipping played like Jimi Hendrix. But when he introduces that song live and he is asked the audience, uh, have you heard of uh, Muddy Waters right. of Mississippi? And he's playing it and the audience knows where they're going for this. <laughs> and, it's, you know, he's performing this to an audience of very white people. But everybody just is like, all right, we're going. We're doing this, and especially because his version. I think one of my favorite moments and we'll get to talking about the blues album is how much more I like Jimi Hendrix's interpretation of Muddy Waters, how much more I like that better than I actually like Muddy Waters. Yeah, I know. (laughs) There's something about the electric blues, and of course we will talk about this when we get to that album, because he was actually kind of like not rated uh, by blues aficionados. Blues aficionados are kind of like you know jazz fans of the 60s. He's sort of like very uptight blue noses, particularly the white blues fans, right? They're like, well, you know, 
he doesn't come from the Delta. That's not really blues music. I'm like, this is too psychedelic. But of course, nowadays, we, we, we no longer have those sorts of hidebound restrictions upon what music is. And we understand that his music is completely suffused with the blues. And it is just one of the most, maybe the most majestic, fully electric, certainly like late 60s rock and roll expressions of it. There were so many blues rock bands that would come out. And I think, frankly, we're inspired by the Jimi Hendrix experience. I've mentioned several times on the show in the past about the late 60s blues boom, which is, you know, began with bands like Fleetwood Mac. Led Zeppelin, of course, was one of the most important groups to come out of this. But what's what's I think less frequently understood is that this was all truly inspired by Jimmy. And I don't know if it would have happened without Jimmy being as incredibly powerful and incredibly inspiring as he was. So like at this point, you know, I can I can sit here and I can say, well, this album isn't as good as this album. I don't like this song as much as that song. I think Noel Redding was Noel Redding wasn't a great bassist, or I could do those things. But at the end of the day, listen, this is a man whose discography, his while he was alive at least, is only four records. And if you don't own these four records, what are you doing even listening to this podcast? Go get them. You have to be conversing with them. You can't you can't claim to know anything about music unless you have those four albums. And and you should probably also go get yourself a bunch of others besides. Let me uh, I'll just say very quickly, and then Jeff can start our, our journey. My, my Hendrix uh, appreciation story is, is very similar to Jeff's in that I was not uh, sort of seeped in it as a youth. And actually... Much like Jeff, too, uh, I knew songs, but I wasn't all that enamored of them. And I think largely because I was burned out. I mean, listening to classic rock, you're going to hear classic rock radio in the you know late 80s when I was. You were going to hear Purple Haze a lot. You were going to hear Hey Joe a lot. And I kind of burned out on uh, some of those songs for, for a while. Coming back and re- not even just rediscovering, but discovering some of the album tracks, what made them special, and especially going back in a in a bulk way as I as I do to, to prep for the podcast. Um, my goodness, the the influence is everywhere. I mean, the the influence that Hendrix had on things uh, to come, things through the seventies, in, in the way guitarists would play, in the way guitar gods uh, sort of sort of became a, a, a real big deal. Uh, some of the some of the textures, some of the tones, uh, some of the effects certainly are popping up all over the place in songs that would come down the line. And as I'm going through these albums, I'm, I'm picking, oh, well, that's where they got that. And, well, that's the first time that that happened and then pops up somewhere else down the road. Uh, Hendrix was extremely influential, which is an understatement. And to Jane's point earlier uh, that, you know, some of this music or some 60s music is only of that time and, and, and some is timeless. Hendrix is... is, uh, is uh, it's it's totally true what you said, but it's also true that it, the music is used so much to set. You know, if you want to set something in that time period, you can still go back and use Hendrix. Oh, yeah. it is, you know, I, Purple I Haze do, will set the, the year for you. Cannot, I genuinely cannot hear all along the Watchtower without being like, oh, we're talking about Vietnam. Yeah, right, right. There are certain songs that I think there's there's a law. If you set a, a movie in 1968, you, you have to use, you know, uh, s- certain songs. 1970, you have to use Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. It just, it's a law somewhere. So Hendrix is often used, you know, set those tones uh, because, again, the music is so evocative, too. It brings out uh, emotions and thoughts and memories. But uh, that, 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 that's that. Let, let's, let, let's dig into the music, Jeff. I mean, the thing about Jimi Hendrix, of course, you know, I think when you, when you, t- you think about one of the greatest blues 
blues musicians, blues rockers, rock artists of all time. Well, where did he come from? He didn't come from the Delta. He wasn't one of the Southern boys. Uh, he came from, of all places, Seattle, Washington, right? Seattle, Washington, which would not be uh, putting up any uh, uh, more incredibly life-changing, world-altering musicians until the 1990s, <laughs> to, until Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Well, unless you, unless you'd want to discount Hart. Or Paul Revere and the Raiders, yeah. I suppose. There's also them, I, I, you know. But like the whole point is, is that you know, you know, Jimmy is such an interesting guy because he was he came from, he came from one place, but he really came from almost all over the world in a way. So like, what has happened? You know, he's born in Seattle. He leaves there in like '61. He joins the army, actually, of all things. He he gets an honorable discharge a year later because he injures himself in a parachute accident. Uh, and then what does he do? You know, he's already a guitar player at that point. He goes and he he, he you know picks up with the chip circuit you know which is to say you know the whole like series of you know southern clubs juke joints bars uh you know venues where you know you know it's black music being played it's soul music being played and he picks up with all these sort of bands that would you know if you have the most recent box set that was released the west coast seattle boy box set the first disc is just all the stuff that jimmy did before he made a name for himself independently so he's playing with like little richard he's playing with the isley brothers and you know with, uh, don covey he's got that same one of the singles on that album is mercy mercy and it's right. funny because you can hear the hendrix like even when he's not playing hendrix right. it's so like <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, he could play classical guitar, and I'd be like, that's Jimi Hendrix. I could hear it from a mile away. And it's amazing to hear him. You know, there are all these famous stories about his interactions with, like, Little Richard, who he did not get along with, and, you know, these host of people. But it's it's funny how, you know, one of the my favorite things about Hendrix's music is that you can just, when you dive in, you're not just diving into him, you're diving into this whole genre that goes back before him but became such an influence on his music he wasn't you know after are you experienced comes out you know you see him personified like he's a psychedelic musician or you know british press called him black elvis or something like that but that's not exactly what it was because it was all of these things was all of these influences all put together I mean, and not only that, but the Hen as you said, the Hendrix flows through in everything that Hendrix plays. Like he would, you know, guest on other people's albums from time to time during his his actual career. Like he played on a, a, a song by the band Love, which mm -hmm. I, I happen to be a fan of, and just. It's actually only a decent song, but when Hendrix starts playing, you're like, holy crap, that's Jimmy. You're like, you can just immediately identify him, his sound, his sound, just something about the way he puts his fingers on the frets, something about the way he wields that instrument is singular for him. So maybe it was only a matter of time before he made it big. And, and what he had done in 1966, at that point, he'd, he'd, he'd struck out on his own and he had started his own group. And he, 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 the name of the group was Jimmy James and the Blue Flames right kind of like a sort of a silly name you know, think about it these days but he was playing in like Greenwich Village in New York City and all that and who would happen to walk in the door except none other than a guy who at that point has just been recently the ex-bassist for the animals who happened to be in New York at the time a fellow by the name of Chaz Chandler was looking for like a big act. He wanted to be a producer. He wanted to get into the production side of things instead of, you know, gigging on the road every day. And he 
he met this guy Jimmy, and he said, "All right, I'll come to see your show that night." He see him, he sees him play a slow version of this song that's just been blowing up among all these small bands in 1966, both small bands and big bands. Everybody had been covering this song. The Birds had been covering the song. Love had done a version of the song. The Standells, the Leaves, everybody was covering a song called "Hey Joe." And then Chas Chandler walks in in 1966. So I think it's like September or maybe you know August of that year, and he sees Jimi Hendrix doing a slow blues version of it, and he just feels like you know he's been smacked in the head with a blackjack. And he's just, it's like, you're going to be a huge star. I'm taking you to England. I want to produce you. And that is why <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, despite being as American as apple pie. Yeah made his name and made his stardom in the United Kingdom and had to come back to the United States, you know, halfway through 1967 after Are You Experienced had already been released and may, and, and actually become a thing here uh, with a very famous performance, which we may talk about later. But yeah, the story of Jimi Hendrix, as although you know, he's a West Coast Seattle boy, this 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 takes us to England, where he records his first single, and it is indeed that slowed down version of "Hey Joe." Uh, this is not on the original album, although you know if you had the American version of "Are You Experienced," you might have thought it was. And uh, I really don't know how many better opening salvos to a career there are than just that opening few chords, you know, the da 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 da, and then the menace, the menace as it goes do 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 boom. And then Jimmy just starts singing like a man with murder in his heart. I don't know what you guys think of this first one. It was the only single he ever released that he did not write himself. Um, but that doesn't diminish it one bit, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that um, it's also it's on the list of songs where keep in mind that I'm here. I you know I grew up with this music, so it, I only realized oh about like five to ten years ago that Hey Joe is a song about. Um, Murder, murdering your, your your woman, your wife, because because she's been running around town with another man. I was like, man, the 
this is a great song, especially because I like the backup vocals and like mm-hmm. the great. Like I like any song that I was like, ooh, people are are singing ooh in the background. I'm into it, and it, it's very funny because there are a host of these songs where I'm coming back. Um, you know, at some if there if you ever do a Bob Marley episode, I could talk about that as well because there are a lot of songs where I'm like, oh, this song's about drugs. I had no idea, but yeah, no, I think also Hey Joe, especially because it's so. It is so unlike anything you are hearing. And I love, you know, there are so many famous stories about, you know, him playing for Clapton or him playing for, you know, Clapton again and then John Lennon where everyone's reactions are like, holy shit. Okay. Like the degree to which he just like went to London and just knocked everybody's socks off is it, it. It's incredible to imagine just everyone's experience of this, you know, of this person who is just like, you know, these are people who are, you know, by the time they're hearing him in 66, these are, you know, these are all very well-established people. He's taught, he's playing for members of the Beatles. He's playing for the Stones. He's playing for Jeff Beck. And they're all like, Oh my God, who is this person? <laughs> yep. And you know, Hey Joe is one of those songs I mentioned earlier that quite frankly, I, kind of tired of hearing for a bit because it was just on so often and uh, again going back and being able to hear it with fresh ears it was important to me to understand the power and again putting it in context as as, as Jane was just was just doing there the first time that people are hearing something like this the menace as Jeff put it in some of those chords and the delivery on a song that again, as Jeff pointed out, is is one that many, many others had been trying to master. And once Hendrix puts his spin on it and, and makes it his own, it is his own. And, and if you ever that. if you ever want to have a laugh, go listen to the birds version of Hey Joe, which is on <laughs> Fifth Dimension. It was released before this. It was released in the middle of nineteen sixty six. Okay. And it's David Crosby singing. And it's like this super like pepped up, like amped up, high speed version. It's like, hey Joe, where you going with that gun in your hand? You know, it's just like ridiculous. It sounds like a like it's being sung by a young teenager. And then all of a sudden, Jimi Hendrix comes in. This is a song that had been covered by so many bands. And he just literally, in one go, erases the rest of them from the face of the earth. Nobody cares about any other version of this song other than Jimmy's. It is the one. And there's no point in it. And after he did it, what on earth would the point ever be of covering it again? <laughs> Patty Smith gave it a good go, I have to admit. I did like her very rebellious, upended version of the song but beyond that there's just who who's gonna bother covering hey joe after Jimi hendrix had his say with it and the hilarious thing about it is if you thought okay well that's an iconic way to open a career what does he do for an encore well he only does i think i, I think you, you we could argue about this i would say it's probably though the single most famous song of his career the one that is most identified with the legend of Jimi Hendrix mm-hmm. and it's the one where he says excuse me while I kiss this guy and, <laughs> and and that of course is Purple Haze. Purple Haze is his second single. Again this is before the first album has even been released. They're in the middle of doing sessions for it but this is the first you know, non-album single. They're just building off that. No, hey Joe was like November of 66. I think Purple Haze is like you know February of 1967. This is before Sgt. Pepper's. This is before the real psychedelic era of the summer of love and all that and then here's Jimi hendrix going with those you know devil's tritone chords the da, 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 and uh he's just blowing your mind one guitar overdub at a time 
yeah, it's 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 funny because those are the moments that you know I've described that one of the reasons I love like I think Zeppelin at its best sounds like if you took a freight train and you put it down a you had a freight train go down a mountain. Like I think that that's what you get with Zeppelin. You know, some of my favorite Zeppelin tracks, like Achilles' Last Stand, which sounds yeah. almost uncontrollable. Like, <laughs> you know, like John Bomb's gonna drum himself off the stage, and that's what Purple Haze is. Like Purple Haze is like you hear that and you're like, oh god, something's coming for us. Like this is not, we are unsafe, and I, I love that so much because it's just like this. It's purely definable. Like if you hear the first two chords, you know what it is. And it just, uh, it's so powerful in this way that things so rarely are. And I think at that point, by the way, we should probably pause to acknowledge that the Jimi Hendrix experience wasn't just Jimi Hendrix. It was two other guys. And when Chas Chandler took him to England, you know, they held auditions to find guys that would work with Jimi, you know, well. And and Jimi wanted like a really kind of a small idea for a band. He didn't want like some six piece or something like that. He wanted a power trio. Basically, he wanted to be something like The Who, which is, you know, always, you know, know, a band that that he was friends with, but also rivals with. Um, So who did you get? You got Mitch Mitchell on drums, who is just remarkable during this era. He sounds like basically the only other drummer, in my mind, who's ever come close to approximating the chaos of Keith Moon. Doesn't mm. quite have yeah. that, that sheer barbarian insanity that Keith Moon had. And it has a few more jazzy touches to him as well. He has, he has a, a, a few different tricks in his quiver. Um, uh, but man, he is an excellent drummer. Uh, sometimes some of the things, the sounds that 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 he gets out of his drum set, I think you know a lot of the help there goes, you know, you know a lot of the you know the credit there goes to Chas Chandler, to Eddie Kramer, um, to Roger Meyer. Um, but uh, by God, it, the, the drum sound on these early Hendrix records is just something to it's, it's a phenomenon. Nothing sounds like it. It's ear candy. It's you yeah. want to hear it. You hear it on like in from the storm. And keep in mind that Mitch turned twenty like a few months before he auditioned for the experience and it just is like there's um you know i i do this a lot where i just go on like long Jimi hendrix youtube things and there there are moments where he's doing like a solo there's a, a swedish performance where they're performing in stockholm and mitch mitchell does this solo and jimmy's just grinning at him and like <laughs> there are moments in where you can kind of tell um I know, uh, Jeff, you and I disagree about one particular example of this. There are moments where I'm kind of, I feel like Jimmy's kind of like, all right, guys, whatever. But with <laughs> Mitch, there are times where I, like his drumming works so well for this, like the immediacy, the power behind it, and you know just how much it works with him. And there, he's, you know, 
only Mitch could go with him on some of the, you know, some of his best work on Angel at the end. Yeah. Yeah. There are moments where I'm like, only Mitch can follow you to this place you're trying to go. Or how about the contrast just on the first album, which we'll get to between something like Manic Depression and then something like Third Stone from the Sun. I mean, it's totally different like approaches or like, you know, um, Up from the Skies where he's playing brushes or something like that on Axis. I mean, he had a lot of versatility. Now, the other member of the band, of course, is the one who I know that, you know, Jane considers to be the best songwriter in the group uh, is, is Noel Redding, the bassist, who actually came to the group as a guitarist. And he was basically, you know, dragooned into bass. This is something that happens more. More often than you might think in famous yes. bands. It's like the sixth time we've had that story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, he wasn't always the most natural bassist, uh, but he held down the roots. He held down the roots pretty well. He was the anchor that kept them from, like, basically, you know, you know floating up into the atmosphere out of, out of control. Uh, and also, I think that. You know, he wrote a couple of songs for the band that I happen to like. I know Jane hates them. Uh, of course, this brings us to the third single and obviously the uh, the first album. They were released simultaneously. The first, the, the third single is "The Wind Cries Mary," which I guess is always treated as like you know the minor part of that you know that three single salvo opening. Um, but I know Miles Davis loved it because he based uh, you know Mademoiselle Mabry on Phil's to Kilimanjaro off of it, the uh, the jazz album, nineteen sixty nine. It's totally a steal from Wind Cries Mary's chord changes. Uh, and a lot of other people love too, but it's it's a complete left turn from you know, he had these two very loud numbers, you know, the the, you know, the angry blues cover, then the, the psychedelic freak out. Now here's just a quiet ballad, uh, beautiful song. And actually kind of a song that, that first indicated that that Jimi Hendrix was going to have a much more interesting and subtle touch on lyrics than he is normally given credit for. Yeah. I think a lot of people treat Hendrix as being this sort of like, you know, oh, this 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 like stoned angel, like uh, yeah, or, you know, noble savage, perhaps. Like ah, uh, yeah, he's just sort of. Yeah, Hendrix called him like the wild man of Borneo. Well, I mean, that's frankly somewhat racist all right but there's there's, but there's maybe even a but there's a gentle patronization i think sometimes in the way that people treat Jimi hendrix's lyrics Mm. when they're a lot more interesting and creative and thoughtful than 99 percent of rock and roll lyrics from that era or any era and i think the wind cry purple haze is just kind of like a psychedelic freak out wow i'm walking on the bottom of the ocean purple haze all in my brain all that stuff you know anybody could have written that uh, you know get them high enough they may come up with that the wind cries mary is a much more beautiful thing where he's talking about like sweeping up the pieces of like, the shattered dishes on the floor he's sweeping up the fight uh you know and then the, and the wind cries mary beautiful image and uh there's a reason why i think that's one of his most underrated songs a broom is drearily sweeping up the broken pieces of yesterday's life somewhere a queen is weeping somewhere a king has no wife the wind that cries very I, I agree. Yeah, Dylan loved that song, too. And I think there's a lot of Dylan in Wind Cries Mary. And Hendrix loved Dylan, clearly. 
Um, but you talk the lyrics in that one. You know, somewhere a queen is weeping, somewhere a king has no wife. They're they're, they're very. It's the first uh, first time of those three. I think, as you mentioned, that the lyrics sort of come to the forefront and uh, and become an imp- a real important part of what he was doing. And, and at the end of the song too. That sort of the start, the stop start, playing around with chords as the as the song comes to a conclusion. It's a very left turn from Purple Haze and Hey Joe but would go to show his depth. I mean, it's a guy who played uh, for years with R&B soul acts, right? I mean, Curtis Mayfield and, and people like that. And we'd see a bit more of that, I think, shine through later. But there's a little bit here, too, on The Wind Cries Mary. So what do you guys make of one of the most perfect debut albums of all time? Who wants to be the guy who tries to say that Are You Experienced is, like, not good? I, I don't even I, – I, I told you in the pre-show notes, I, I despair talking about this album because it's, it's perfect, frankly. Okay, remember, there's one song on it that's kind of like obviously just sort of a toss-off, get-me-across-pitch song. That's Remember. Even Can You See Me, which they played live, by the way, it's not super incredible. It's not like – an all-time highlight but it's still fun and engaging like sort of psychedelic pop everything else on this album is famous you just run down the list of songs like i know that 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 oh my god i know all these damn songs they're all immense it's one of the greatest debut albums of all time it's up there with murmur it's up there with funeral it's up there um with anything that's ever released and it's almost impossible to discuss like you know what do you single out do you think lover confusion is the best song or manic depression <laughs> or third stone or fire or foxy lady or uh I'm, I, I give up yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's, I mean, Fire, I think is one of my favorites purely because live, it's him and Mitch Mitchell playing it like it's a gun. Like, it's genuinely like, you know, there are so many, I, I joke that I, you know, I've got this big Spotify playlist of Hendrix that I share a bunch. Um, and, you know, the the number of versions I have of Fire, I think I've got like 30 <laughs> different versions of that live performance. Um, but it's just, it's, it's tremendous. It's just tremendous. Listen here, baby. The step back is so crazy. You say your mom ain't home and ain't my concern. Just come play with me and you won't get burned. I have only one to itch and desire. Let me stand next to your fire. Like, I Don't Live Today is one of those songs that, like, I got really, you know, I started, I, that was one of my favorites when I was in high school, just because it just is, like, it's just so loud, and it just, uh, like, it's, I, I mean this in a way that I hope doesn't sound, like, diminutive, but it's kind of punk rock in a very specific way. Like, if you, you know, if the Ramones had covered I Don't Live Today, I think it could have totally worked. Whoa!
but just as like, ah, it, I mean, it's a fan for that to just be the start and have, you know, if, if all Hendrix had done had been like, are you experienced? And I'd been like, all right, cool. That was it. Like that'd be pretty solid right there. I mean, the thing about these songs, too, is also the production on this. This is one of the things I really want to single out for Chaz Chandler. I mean, the sound, this, they've got this very tight, very, it is very 1960s, this tight, really compressed sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything is so hot. But you also have all these guitar effects. Like, I Don't Live Today has like one of the first wah-wah pedals that you'll ever hear in rock music, although I, I don't think it was an actual pedal. I think they just like, like, were like flipping the faders yeah, in the, the right. studio to get that sound out of it. And then you have all these crazy, glossy overdubs on May This Be Love, which is like a toss-off track for them. Or Love and Confusion, which has like six different guitars playing simultaneously. Or Are You Experienced, which opens with that voom. Which almost sounds like record scratching, right? It sounds like somebody's like doing the zhuka, 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 zhuka on a turntable. But what it actually is, uh, is just Jimi Hendrix like doing the chunka, chunka, chunka on his guitar. And then they took it and then they reversed every yeah. single chunka, chunka and played it like that. And it creates this completely swirling, hazy sound that is a marvel, an absolute marvel on the level to my, uh, to my mind of anything that was achieved on Sgt. Pepper's, um, maybe on a slightly simpler level because it's just you know it's just guitars bass and drums but the sounds that they get from guitars out of this album um changed the world forever if you can just get your mind together Then come on across to me We'll hold hands and then we'll watch the sunrise From the bottom of the sea But first, are you experienced? Or have you ever been experienced? Well, I Uh, let me go back very quickly uh, to the to the B sides and some of those singles. I don't want to forget about them because they're great, right? Stone Free uh, was the B side to Hey Joe, great rocker. Um, although when it starts, I sometimes think about She's a Lady from Tom Jones because of that cowbell. Um, and then uh, the B side from Wind Cries Mary, uh, Highway Child is really one of my favorites. And that that guitar sting around the chorus that just gets it digs in and gets stuck in my head for weeks. At a time, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and hear just the chorus of Highway Child. Now you probably call him a tramp, but I know it's all the little demon I'm at. He's a Highway Child. What's up, brother? Damn! of those singles um man uh, are you experienced jeff yes of course all these songs are amazing uh fire 
that, that raw energy that certainly comes off live, as, as Jane mentioned, but but even on the recorded version, that, that, that drum intro, which I was uh, reading Elvis Costello's uh, book a couple of years ago now when he, when he mentioned Pete Thomas just outright stole the beginning of Chelsea from the, you know, the opening of Fire. I had never put two and two together, but of course, if you listen, yeah, it's the exact same thing. Um, amazing stuff from Mitch Mitchell. There's a really strong bass part that rumbles through Fire. Uh, it's a fantastic song. Manic Depression is one of the songs, even when I was kind of burned out on Hendrix uh, on the radio years ago, I never tired of hearing Manic Depression and that weird, I think it's 6-8 time signature. And the way that vocal track just sort of floats and climbs and falls along with the guitar and bass line, uh, really love Manic Depression. so pretty, the sweet calls in pain. Fusion uh, is one of the top tracks on uh, 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 an album full of top tracks. And boy, when the when that final song hits, you know, the t- title track, Are You Experienced? And, and Jeff sort of described, uh, and many people, of course, have heard it. Most people, I imagine, have heard it. But it really is, um, uh, I hate to be cliche, an experience, right? To, to hear the way all that stuff comes together. It has this this drone like quality. You you would not feel odd if there were a sitar yeah, in there somewhere. Ex- but it's, exactly. there's it's there's raga there's raga yeah. music in there. Yeah, but the, but you know yeah those backward guitar and drum parts that are played backward. Mitchell's kind of military snare drum quality to it. Man, that is just an amazingly well put together song uh, to close a, a truly tremendous album. So the question is, do we talk about his next single in the context of its singleness, or do we talk about it in the context of its albumness? Because what a lot of people don't realize is that what happens right after Are You Experienced, which of course hits like, you know, a 10-ton load of dynamite, goes, you know, soars to near the top of the charts in the United Kingdom, and also eventually when Jimmy plays Monterey, the Monterey Musical Festival in, uh, in June of 1967 in California, breaks big in the United States as well with an altered track listing. What happens next is that he does a song called The Burning of the Midnight Lamp, which everybody associates with Electric Ladyland, but it isn't part of Electric Ladyland at all. It comes in between Are You Experienced and Acts as Bold as Love, and I think that's kind of where it belongs to me. I love this song. This song was kind of like a failed single. It didn't do so well, uh, but I I I I, I love the fact that it's a very it's very much a left turn for him. Mm-hmm. You know, if you hear the demo versions of it, he's doing it on harpsichord, yeah. and of course you can tell that from the opening riff. You know, dom 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 dom. It's very very clearly something that feels like it was composed on a keyboard, as opposed to composed on a guitar, and you know, and this just builds to this stunning climax. And you know, maybe what's the only criticism you can have again? Is, against it. I would say that this has always been a legend about Hendrix, that he hated the sound of his own voice. Huh. 
which which is just you know uh, just kind of makes you sad, right? Because Jimi Hendrix had one of the most incredible rock and roll voices of all time. He sounds like literally like the textbook dictionary definition of a rock and roller. <laughs> when he sings, that's what you want to hear, right? But he didn't like his voice, and so so often on those early albums and singles he buries himself in the mix and I think his voice is buried a little yes. bit too much in the yes. mix of the song but I love it I love it so best part for me is that guitar uh, going on during the chorus where it just elevates and elevates and higher like a like a plane taking off right uh, uh, getting off the ground uh, that chorus is great and the backing vocals too done by uh, sweet inspirations um, there's a great set of backing vocals on this track too Jane yeah I was just thinking about this because I think that that was it's interesting how Jimmy was able to cross over elements of ongoing contextual music, yeah. you know, kind of the beginnings of this song, which sound so familiar to of this era, but it also is taken out of this era and lifted out of this era to be something that becomes timeless. But it's funny because you mentioned Monterey, and Monterey becomes famous because that's where he sets his guitar on fire. Right. And- he, he had a war with The Who about who was going to go on first. And I believe that uh, The Who won the uh, won and they went on first so they could do their auto-destruction act. And then Jimmy went on after them and set his guitar on fire. Right. And the person who took the picture of that, that famous picture of him doing so was a 17 year old who had never heard of Jimi Hendrix before. And he had one shot left in his role of film. And that's the picture he took. Well, if you're going to get lucky, that's a heck of a way to get lucky. <laughs> I hope I hope he's been managed to retire on the royalties from that one photo alone. I mean, and, and that's, of course, what happens. By the way, you know what Jimi Hendrix first toured uh, in America with? Uh, it, it was with none other than a band that we've actually already covered on this show, the that's Monkees. Right. Yep, yep. It was the Monkees because Mike Nesmith uh, and uh, uh, Mickey Dolenz were you know, hanging out in England a lot. And, of course, they picked up on the hype of Hendrix and they saw this guy and they saw this guy's amazing. And so they're like, hey, come with us. And, like, you know, I think that Hendrix and Chandler were kind of a little bit like, well, the Monkees. But they also figured, like, well, you're not going to you're going to get seen by more people than on the planet than you could ever <laughs> hope for with anyone else. Because it's the Monkees in the early 67 and everybody's going to see the Monkees. So that was that was a, a famous mismatch of a Billing, although I think the monkeys are better than people often give them credit for, obviously. But he didn't even uh, last the, he didn't last the tour, did he? 
I don't think he did. I think yeah. he only lasted for like a couple of months or something like that. And then he came back. And then what he did after he came back to England is he finished up the work on his second album, an album that, that is always sort of treated as sort of like, uh, I don't know. I think I've treated it like it like this in the past as well as a, a, a curious dip between two very tall stools. So you have Are You Experienced on one end and an Electric Ladyland on the other end. And then in between them, you have Axis, Bold as Love. This is a record that is sort of unique in the sense that it, it doesn't have a lot of big hits on it. It doesn't have like Purple Haze and, or uh, you know, Are You Experienced or Foxy Lady and Fire and all that. And it doesn't have All Along the Watchtower or Crosstown Traffic. The, the most famous song on this record that you might have heard of and I hope you've heard of is, is Little Wing. And that's a very soft and quiet song for the most part. Uh, this is, it, I wouldn't, I no longer would argue I always used to think of it in this way, that it's a subdued album. There are a lot of rockers on this record. Yeah, mm-hmm. You Got Me Floating? Yeah, like, that's a great song. Yeah, you got me floating across and through. You made me float right on out to you. There's only one thing I need to really get to me there. Is to hear you laugh without a Or, you know, even even One Rainy Wish, which starts off kind of like as a remake of May This Be Love, and then it goes into the I Have Never, and then boom, all the guitars start coming in. Or Little Miss Lover is just, you know, a Spanish Castle Magic. Spanish Castle Magic, which is my favorite song on this album, because I love that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
Oh yeah. Uh, I, I was. I thought we were about to finally have our big argument about Noel Redding's songwriting, but yeah, no, like that comes next. I think that I've always been a big fan of this album, especially. I think it's because that if if Six Was Nine comes, it goes. If Six Was Nine, you got me floating and Castles Made of Sand, and I was like, great, three great songs. It's all you need. I mean, and that's not including like <laughs> the other pieces of this album, but it's just like, especially because I think that. This album contains, and I know it sounds a little odd, but I remember thinking there's so much more of Jimmy I wanted, especially because he passed away so soon. And there are there are moments in this album where he's just talking, and I really like that. I mean, it's part of why I love you know the BB. Yeah, Castles Made of Sand. He just talks his way through that entire song. I love it. And you know that's why I love the BBC sessions. That's where I love like you know on uh, it, the, because we have so much of his session music. There are moments where he's like working on something or trying to, you know talking with the producers or talking with other people. And I love that so much to just get what Jimmy was actually like. You know, it's yes. funny because now yeah. you can read interviews with like Janie Hendrix or something like that. And everyone's ideas of Jimmy are so much based on like, he was my much older sibling or like something around him. And just to hear him speak is something that I just, I really like about that. This one, I, there are some really high moments on this record, but I don't think, on the whole, it stands as tall as the ones that that are on on, on either end. And so I would, I would say it's overlooked, and and and, and there, overlooked sometimes means there's there's a there's a, a possibility for uh, uh, people to experience it for the first time and, and find these little things that I really enjoy. And there certainly are. Uh, there certainly are those possibilities here. Spanish Castle Magic, which Jane mentioned. That is a tremendously great song. A little bit of a of, of kind of a uh, um, foxy lady feel to it, but but the, the pounding, that, that brutal drum pounding. You know, you think about uh, a lot of this early stuff from Hendrix as being a little, uh, or like the drum work as being a little more jazzy and intricate. And this is not. This is just brutal, right? It's just, just loud and in your head. Uh, 
Uh, it's got a great guitar solo toward the fade of the song, and a, a, a just tremendous riff. Spanish Castle Magic, You Got Me Floating, which Jane also mentioned, is a tremendous song. Roy Wood backing vocals on You Got Me Floating, never released as a single, but maybe should have been. It's just a very simple, hooky kind of uh, upbeat pop song. That's the um, move on tempo. backing vocals. That's Roy yeah. Wood and company. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I really like that quite a bit. If Six Was Nine, as Jeff mentioned earlier, very good. I think Bold is Love toward the tail end is, is good. Um, I've never been all that, I don't want to say impressed, it's not the right word. I've never loved Little Wing. It's fine. Uh, I know lots of other people like it more than I do. Uh, pretty good melody, but 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 it's not one of the highlights of the record for me. That could be one of the reasons why I discounted a bit more than other people too. But this is uh, a little of where some of the melody becomes more important, more to the forefront in some of Hendrix's writing. Uh, the guitar uh, work is still there. Certainly, his virtuosity on the guitar is highlight highlighted all over the place. But there's a little bit more melody in places too. Uh, so it's a good it's a good record. He didn't make a bad record, uh, but I do think there are some portions of the album which which sort of drag it down a little bit. I mean, I I, I hate to to sound like a jerk. I'm certainly not trying to get a rise out of people, but I will argue that Little <laughs> Wing is is the most overrated uh, Jimi Hendrix song of all time, unless it's his cover of All on the Watchtower, uh, which I also well we've already had this discussion when we did our Bob Dylan yes. episode, yeah, but I yeah. I've always preferred. Dylan's original version of it. In fact, the, the All Along the Watchtower conundrum comes up every time. We, we, we did a covers episode and it had to come up there because it's just like inevitable. Um, but yeah, Little Wing, I, I like it. I like the change of pace. I really do like him going for a softer mood, but I don't know. I think it, it, it's almost like there's there's not a melody there. I'll tell you the one that I also just think is, is stunning and there's nothing else like it in the entire Hendrix discography is Wait Until Tomorrow. Uh, that that opening, that really tight sliding sixths, um, you know, opening, you know, when he's playing on his on his guitar, that 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 sets the mood for this. Again, it's sing speak. You know, he's not really singing; he's talking his way through it. You know, he's like, what is he? He's basically like doing a a Romeo and Juliet move, right? You know, where he's you know like, you know you know standing outside the window of his beloved girl, and he's you know he's trying to climb a ladder to get up to her. But instead, uh, on this one, and there's always these weird dark turns he's get you got one of those in castles made of sand as well but but on this one like what happens instead of him you know like you know coming to rescue his love he gets shot <laughs> he gets shot by his by the by the, by the woman's dad click bang what a hang your daddy just shot poor me and i hear you say as i fade away we don't have to wait until tomorrow and you get those little backing vocals those nagging backing vocals from the rest of the experience and I, I don't know I think maybe like Graham Nash is on the sessions too or something like that they're really effective and this is just very a quiet blues song again you know closest I can think of that he ever did to this again might it be Long, Homer, Long Hot Summer Night off of Electric Ladyland mm -hmm. but, uh, but there's nothing quite like it in this discography and this is the, one of the things that I think the most about when I say that Hendrix was such an underrated lyricist that song actually like deals in layers of irony and you know humor, black humor if you will um, that he never gets credit for. Again, I'm tired of people treating him as if he's some sort of like, you know, you know, some sort of stoned mystic or something like that. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix actually had interesting ideas lyrically. He had interesting things to say. And you can hear them in the lyrics if you will just sit down and read those lyrics. Sit back. 
You know, when you talk about his lyricism, I remember when I first, you know, when you're a kid and you're listening to music, I was like, you know, going back to the discussion of the wind cries Mary. I was like, what the hell are you talking about, Jimmy? But there are moments now, especially where I see the influence and I see the poetry in his work and also kind of the poetry that works with his music that works in, you know, in the context of the music itself. And I think that that's part of what makes Jimmy so effective and so timeless. Like it's not, you know, he did, he never thought, I mean, I actually kind of like hearing in some ways that, you know, he didn't think his voice was that great. And he also didn't have the, and I, I will say this and hopefully we'll not get, you know, Jim Morrison's stands in my mentions, but like <laughs> Jim Morrison definitively thought of himself as being a poet right. and thought of himself as being kind of above the music in a sense, like a great, his work was greater than the music. Jimmy never did. Jimmy was never going to be like, you know, I, you know, he did not think of himself in that way. And in some ways, I think that that makes it makes him all the more appealing to me. Oh, yeah. While we're talking about poetry, I don't think you know, it would be fair for us to pass over a discussion of Axis Bold as Love without talking about the greatest poetic achievement on the record, which is uh, the song by Noel Redding, She's oh. So Fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, she walks with a bell clock around her neck so the hippies will think <laughs> she's in time. Uh, yeah. yeah. Her hair glistens like robins on a deck. Branches attack me from her neck. Yeah. She's so very, very fine. I know, Jane, you hate this song. I I'm going to I'm going to confess. Listen, I mean, Noel Redding can't sing his way out of a paper bag. Granted, you know, it's funny. Jimi Hendrix thought he had a bad voice. Well, no, Noel Redding has a bad voice. I still love that track. And I'll tell you the thing I love about it the most. Maybe I, this is, sounds like such heresy. One of my favorite guitar moments of Hendrix's entire career comes at the end of that song where Jimmy plays that guitar solo, that, that, that ascending into the heavens, the, you know, that, that upward guitar solo part. And I just you know, wonder why, uh, you know, why they, they, they couldn't have, have, have saved it for a better song. <laughs> I like I like the solo, but I just love imagining the like the interactions that resulted in this song. I, I like thinking I just I like 
No, oh, I hate this song. Like, I love Jimmy, and I appreciate what he did for this song, and he's doing his best. But this is the song where I was like, this is the most, like, oh, I could tell exactly what year this song was written, and this song's expiration date was about three months later. Yeah, I still like it. I don't know about you, Scott. <laughs> Any last thoughts on Axis before we move on to uh, the, the big mountain, the big Mount Everest of his entire discography? Yeah, I think we're good to go. Well, the big Mount Everest of entire discography is none other than Electric Ladyland. Yeah. Have you ever been to Electric Ladyland? I, I hope you have, because if you haven't, then I want to show you. Uh, I want to show you a deeper emotion. I want to show you uh, uh, that there is such a thing as an unself-indulgent double album. Uh, and this was, of course, an album that was accused of that very thing when it was first released. It was released, I think, at the end of 1968. So uh, you know, they released Axis at the, in December of 67. took almost a full year before the next album came out. Um, and, of course, this is the point where Jimmy is, is recording endlessly. He's moved to New York, and so he's doing endless takes. He's got a bunch of hangers on, people who knew him from back in the scene and the, you know, the whole Greenwich Village days and all the, during the Chitlin Circuit days, and everyone's there. You know, you got a cast of thousands, guys from like the you know traffic and Jefferson Airplane are hanging out. Everyone's getting high. Noel Redding just gets absolutely fed up with all of it. He can't stand it. He only plays on half of this album. Jimmy Which takes over. More impressive because that means Jimmy is playing yes. bass on a lot of this. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Noel's playing a lot of the good stuff too. He's playing on Voodoo Child. You know, he's playing on um, you know Burning of the Midnight Lamp on Crosstown Traffic and a lot of that. But yeah, a lot of like the really big epic songs like the long voodoo child and uh 1983 yeah that's all jimmy just jimmy overdubbing himself endlessly and of course the other thing is that chas chandler also had enough of it yeah he, he was getting really fed up with with uh, not only jimmy's endless perfectionism but i guess maybe not having the deference that he wanted as a studio producer and you can tell on the sound the the the, the first two hendrix experience albums have a, have a very kind of a tight compressed you know, 1960s pop sound they they end up transcending that time because of the quality of the songwriting and the playing but they do still have a sonic sheen that makes you think well okay that's clearly like psychedelic you know 1967 London Electric Lady Lane doesn't sound like that at all it's a much more open and expansive sometimes it descends into claustrophobia stuff like Gypsy Eyes and Long Hot Summer Night are much more tight than that and of course Burning from the Burning of the Midnight Lamp is on this album but Look, the sum, the summary I'm just going to throw out here now before I let you guys offer your thoughts is that this is one of those very, very few albums that is a double album that I would not take a single second off of. No. And, and, I, and I recognize fully that there are two sound effects tracks on this album. <laughs> All right? There's And the God Made Love, and then there's what, Moon Turned the Tides, Gently, Gently Away. And then at the end of Voodoo Child, the, the, the long blues 14-minute version, there's like a minute, a full minute of just like people talking in the studio. Like as everyone's high, and like, yeah, it was a great jam session, man. Let's all go out and get do some more drugs. And... Uh, I still wouldn't remove any of it. No, this is a perfect double album. It is. And I think that it's, it's Jimmy's perfectionism, one, that's responsible for why we have so much material. And you can hear that at the beginning of like the recording sessions for Gypsy Eyes, which he did over, you know, if you hear that, that yes. it's that yeah. drum track, that bunch, 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 and like getting the timing right for when he drops in on that. And it's so, like, it's so good. <laughs> Hey! <laughs> 
of this like 1983 there's an, like around the 12 minute mark where it goes into this like bump but at a bump but at a bump but at a bump but like I, it just it's you know still raining still dreaming which goes so naturally into house burning down that i'm just like you i ought you it's one of it's also it's not it's not just i think one of the best double albums it's one of the best double albums that you can put it on and just be like oh okay that's the, how i'm spending the next x amount of time of my life Speaking of which, you know, you talk about like songs that that have become famous all on the Watchtower, off the last side of of Electric Ladyland. Of course, you know, famous. It's always played as a soundtrack to the '60s epic protest and all that. Why is it house burning down in the same exact category? It should be up there in that same pantheon. This is one of his five greatest songs, in my opinion, and it is so burningly relevant to 1968 this is about the watts riots this is about all of the civil unrest you know I, somebody's house is burning down 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 he's talking about like you know like you know every why are you why are you burning your brother's house down and it's also set to this incredible riff you know the hey 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 look at the sky burn a hellfire red and then it goes into like this tango rhythm where like right dun Dun, 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 dun. And I just I love his use, like how he combines styles and can play through so many different ways of doing this. still raining still dreaming which is it's so playful but it also has this moment towards the end where it just becomes this like repetitiveness in this almost like classical sense that the whole funky wah-wah pedal jamming at the end yeah yeah, and uh, it's just this album it's 
you can see why it took so long. You can see how much thought Jimmy put into this. And I can understand that, like, for the purposes of a time at which people were not like, let's make giant double albums that are this <laughs> loose. But, you know, it's an album that contains both Come On, Let the Good Times Roll and Crosstown Traffic and, you know... 1983, A Merman I Shall Turn to Be. Which is beautiful. It beautiful. Is. It is. It's just absolutely beautiful. And never forget, by the way, Jane, never forget, in 1968 when this album came out, Rolling Stone uh, said that it was a disappointment and the best song on it was uh, Noel Redding's Little Miss Strange. <laughs> <laughs> Rolling Stone, usually wrong. Oh, there's so much of this album that I really love. And, um, you know, pushing things to the boundaries, uh, Jane mentioned how, how much of a perfectionist Hendrix really was on this album. Gypsy Eyes was at least 50 takes, at least 50 takes to try to get that exactly the way he wanted. But it allowed him to really explore, you know, mic techniques and, and all those guitar effects and uh, echo and, 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 and how to create the soundscape he was looking for. Uh, and it, it was virtually all him. He said Chess Chandler didn't put up with it. Noel Redding wasn't going to put up with it. And so it was all Jimmy. This album contains... Uh, it's a, it's a, it's maybe it's my favorite Jimi Hendrix song just to hear. It's Crosstown Traffic. I, I, it's not the it's not the deepest track in his catalog. It's not the most guitar pyrotechnic song in his catalog. But I love the the fun of Crosstown Traffic. That bouncy tune, a catchy chorus, and the kazoo that sort of doubles his guitar parts. Uh, kind do you, of. Do, do you know what that song is all about to me? It's the piano. Which yes. Just like almost yes. doesn't even have a like a melody or anything. It's just it's hitting rhythm notes like these like dark deep rhythm notes I, I love it i wrote down that it reminds me a bit of the way the beatles used the piano on hey bulldog yeah um yeah i very, see it very similar Crosstown Traffic has long been one of my very favorite Hendrix songs. It's a pretty, pretty well-known song. Jeff mentioned House Burning Down, which, yes, should be as well-known as anything else that comes off this album. Uh, Gypsy Eyes is fantastic. Long, hot summer night. How insistent his vocals are on that track. You know, where are you in this hot, cold summer? Um, and it, the, you know, he didn't love his vocals. They would actually be a little more in the forefront um, uh, on the, the posthumous stuff in, in those mixes. But even here, it's not always in the front. But, you know, maybe it should have been. Long, hot summer night, that vocal track, I think, makes long hot summer night the song that it really is uh voodoo child which uh we've mentioned in passing so well, far which voodoo child you always have to specify the slight return because slight return is like oh i need to get through this in five minutes but that's you know that's not necessarily where we're going for this they don't even sound like the same song to me no at they don't all. they don't they don't no i was just going to mention the last uh, the, the slight return just to say that is one of the most um 
um, it is just an all-consuming song. The, the, you know, the, the four or five minutes that it is, in terms of uh, the guitar work, and it is, you know exactly what it is when you hear that guitar riff, but it never fails to deliver the goods, no matter how many times you hear Voodoo Child, Slight Return. That's just such a, such a burning, it's all-consuming uh, and, and that goes to everything. It goes to you know the fire imagery on the album. It goes for the, the cover of the album. It goes to the passion and the uh, the amount of work that Hendrix is putting into this this double album. Again, largely playing a lot of the bass parts and working in the studio. Uh, I think Voodoo Child, the slight return, the way it closes, is just a perfect perfect encapsulation of all that went in to Electric Lady. Life. throw themselves on the all along the watchtower grenade or is it going to have to be me it's i mean i think at this point to me it's been it's such a ubiquitous song that it kind of turns into like like what's a what's a good con- do you remember when uh i can't remember what car manufacturer but they used led zeppelin's rock and roll for an ad it's cadillac it just, i think it, I, I, I think a comparison that, that Scott and I have used in the past is the way that like every time you see a scene of Vietnam in, in a movie, then they're playing Fortunate Son by Creedence Clearwater Revival or <laughs> All Along the Watchtower. As I said, that like I, hearing All Along the Watchtower, I immediately am like, okay, so these are, you know, I'm in a helicopter over like Nian Diem Phu or something. <laughs> like I was, I was very impressed with the uh, Ken Burns Vietnam documentary that he like restrains himself from using it. <laughs> well, that's because he got Trent Reznor to do the music. It's all full circle, Jeff. All full circle.
can't. I think that it's it's not, you know, I, I was thinking back. I'm like, I think that that might be the one song where it's like, I've heard it so often that sometimes I forget it's on this album. Like, it just feels like it just came, it just like the Ur song, yes. Ur Hendrix song. It just came from nowhere. But yeah, it's like, it's not. It's not my favorite. Like it's good, but it's not my favorite on this album, especially because I I am not a a big Dylan person. Um, oh, well, I, oh, you know what? I, you have so many other good qualities. I, I do, I do. <laughs> I, I I could tell. I could make you really mad by telling you that my favorite Dylan song is either Masters of War or Hurricane, and beyond that, I'm like, eh. <laughs> okay, well, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna mute my well, microphone. In case right you want to learn, madness increasing. If you want to learn more, we did do nine hours on him uh, last summer, so you can go back <laughs> to the exactly. There's no, there's no lack of coverage, but I do actually, <laughs> I completely understand, Jane, what you're saying about that. It's just, it's, it's sort of as I said, like it's the first Hendrix song that everyone hears. That or Purple Haze, obviously, are the first. Things that and if you walked into to a rural village in India and you said, "Hey, you know, have you ever heard of Jimi Hendrix?" They'd be like, "All along the Watchtower, yeah." And you know, I, that's how ubiquitous it is. And so that's why I guess inevitably I ended up turning to things like 1983, which I gosh, is it my favorite song on this album? That and House Burning Down. It, it's one of those two. I, I love that this is Jimi Hendrix doing prog rock progressive rock Jimi hendrix in 1968 and like it, it takes you on this actual journey you descend beneath the waves into some sort of science fiction aquaman like future this is like literally i don't i've never seen the film but if they didn't get this for the soundtrack to aquaman well they missed out i mean how could this not be a part of it um because like it has that great descent it's all instrumental that's the best part about it and i've heard his acoustic guitar demo it's on the, the boxed set of this and it's hilarious how all the elements are actually basically there in this acoustic demo and then you hear the way he actually developed it into this 14 minute long epic you know where you have these oceanic you know echoed guitars it's him and eddie kramer obviously just getting up to all sorts of crazy nonsense in the studio playing with like you know tape flanges and phasing and things like that but it it, it is a genuine transportation to a different place and it's to me it's 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 that beautiful place where ambition is fully equaled by grasp like he strove to do something and he was absolutely capable of getting it and executing it to perfection. Oh, 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 oh,
what that song is to me. That's what that album is to me. And I guess this, you know, the, the inevitable disappointment, the sad story of Hendrix's career is that we aren't going to get anything like that again. I guess that takes us to, to his last album of his career, uh, which is Band of Gypsies, which must have felt like a very weird footnote at the time. <laughs> this is his, his, um, his contractually obligated album. He, he, he was signed with, uh, I believe, Reprise, Warner Brothers Reprise in the United States, but uh, because he had had a previous career before he became Jimi Hendrix, you know, back when he was still like Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, and, you know, he had a different manager in America in the early and mid-60s, uh, Capitol Records apparently had like a claim against him. And the way, the quickest way he could you know get himself um off of this obligation was to record a quickie live album it was all quote unquote new material but of course half of it was written by like you know buddy miles who he'd started buddy miles drummer for the uh, electric flag which is you know a forgotten band uh miles never my favorite drummer um they do end up coming up with a nice sort of a groove. He's just a very simple kind of a four-on-the-floor yes. soul he's drummer. He's good at it, though. I mean, he's good for what he is. Um, <laughs> he's good for he's good for the material they're playing. Yeah. I have to give him that. But he's not Mitch Mitchell, which is why it's it's very telling that, that Hendrix eventually ended up bringing back Mitchell. Uh, but what he did do is Noel Redding is gone, got fired, and he, he stuck with an old friend of his from his Army days, a guy named Billy Cox. Who I think, you know, when we talk about the posthumous maternity, we can get into this a little bit. But I think of Billy, of Billy Cox as being my favorite of Hendrix's, like, of the people who got to work with Hendrix. Billy Cox is my favorite. Yeah, as, you know what? He's mine, too. I think he, I think as, as a bass guitarist, he's the best of them. Yeah. And it's just like you. I mean, obviously, Band of Gypsies, it didn't last very for very long. But you can hear on this album, like Machine Gun. <sighs> well, that lasted forever. Ooh. That's it's it's just and especially because Billy Cox's ability to go along with Hendrix as Hendrix is doing Lord knows what during that song. <laughs> I mean, they 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 of course jammed like you know in the early '60s together. They 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 reconnected periodically since then. And once Noel's out, uh, you know, Billy Cox comes in, and yes, he is he's a much more sympathetic. You know, it's always said. You know, that one of the stories about Hendrix's later career is that he was getting a lot of stick from a lot of black activists, black panthers, and the such. He's basically the most famous African American musical celebrity on the planet. They were saying, well, you know, you're not being authentic. Why are you playing with a bunch of white guys? And he resisted that, all right? That's why he brought Mitch Mitchell back. He's like, screw you guys. I, I'm going I'm to play with the guys who I like and who I know, who I trust, and who I want to be in my band. Um, uh, but, you know, Band of Gypsies does represent an era, and he wrote about this in some of his songs. There's some of the songs on the, the first box set, the purple one, uh, where he he actually talks about it, like you know he actually wrote a song about like you know ain't it a shame I go home and people ask me like you know why I'm like you know for, you know abandoning my people and stuff like that. This was like these political kinds of issues were a real thing for a guy with the profile of Hendrix in in the late '60s and early '70s. That plays a role in the, in Band of Gypsies from going from the experience to Band of Gypsies. The album itself I've always felt is is really compromised. I like the first half of it, I guess. Mm. I like who knows a lot. It's just a groove. It's it just is. a simple bass groove. But you know what? It's a good groove. I read it's a really fun. Groove. And of course, as Jane just said, Machine Gun. 
you know, do we do we need to explain why that's one of the greatest guitar f- you know solo features of his entire career? The you know the you know the, he's literally playing the guitar and it makes it sound like a machine gun. soul you know which is you know kind of a fairly simple song but then like you know those two buddy miles songs changes my mind's been going through some changes (laughs) i mean it's just so like you know you talked about spirit in the sky being quintessential 1970 this is pretty quintessential 1972 and not necessarily in a good way we gotta live together same thing message to love it's second rate hendrix the strangest thing about band of gypsies for me will always be the fact that if you go get that live at the fillmore east double cd that was released in 1999 it's an archival set by the hendrix family it's same same shows as these concerts um and all, a lot of the same songs in fact as well that is way better way yeah. better than band of gypsies and that's a banger of an album but because it includes like like more stuff from his repertoire you get these like really long versions of stone free mm. you know and fire and foxy lady and purple haze and like and you know we'll get, red- we can get into it a little bit but you get um you know we will talk about this later but you get in that live album you get one of my absolute favorite you know if we had pinnacle and i'm sure we'll get into it isabella yeah one of my favorite songs by anyone ever but the live version of that i just i it's it so burns oh. hey, isabella. get two extra versions of machine gun there are four of them were played during the shows and now we have all of them so what do you think of band of gypsies you guys i think it's great it's funny like the backstory behind it especially as kind of it was a requirement and especially because it ends with everyone kind of hating each other and being angry and people getting fired Hmm. but i think for because it gave us Machine Gun, I'm like, fine. And because it, you know, you put Billy Cox and Jimi Hendrix together, and as we'll discuss, like, he, they just work together so beautifully. Mm-hmm. 
like they were truly simpatico and you know if when we get to the posthumous stuff like you see that on like jam 292 and things like that where they're just like oh you just put these two people in a room they could go for days i like this live album quite a bit actually and you know you guys talk a lot about machine gun i i think who knows is nearly as good uh, and i love his tone i love hendrix's guitar tone on most of this record but especially on who knows there's a perfect tone and a really great groove on on who knows Maybe you don't like Miles' drumming here is that it is really high up in the mix. It's a loud uh, drum sound on Band of Gypsies. And maybe if it were a little uh, less prominent, it would it would it would blend a little better. But again, I do think that for what he is and what these songs demand, Miles does a pretty good job of uh, of keeping time and, and adding those 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 thumping beats in places. Uh, I agree with Jeff that the second half um, is not as good as the first half. Uh, things things fall apart a bit on the non-Hendrix written songs. Changes is really not a good song. <laughs> um, but but I really like listening to Band of Gypsies. Um, you know, it's, it's it's one of those live albums that I think captures something that, that was happening at the time. It was New Year's, well, right around New Year's Day, uh, 1970. So this is a very specific place in time. You know that too by the, the Machine Gun introduction uh, where he dedicates the, uh, the song to the, the people fighting uh, in Chicago and also over in Vietnam. So uh, it is kind of a, a document too, in addition to being uh, this workout for these songs that he was, he was in the midst of, of putting together. By the way, Scott, if you didn't like changes on Band of Gypsies, I just want you to know that the original unedited version of that song was 10 minutes long. Oh, goodness. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you would have loved that one even more. Um, and, and so that brings us to the end of Jimi Hendrix's career. Or is it? Or is it? And of course, this is I mean, it's not like I need to inform you people about what happened. He died. He died of a, I mean, I, I don't even actually know. Was it just alcohol or was it alcohol and so pills? Taken, um, he took sleeping pills um, as well as being, he had taken a Vesperax because apparently this is at the time in which Pete, you know, he, you people would get a uh, prescribed sleeping medication that now is pretty much reserved for horses. <laughs> so and, he got the equivalent of ketamine. In it, other words. And so he, uh, he had taken nine prescribed Vesperax sleeping tablets and then a set choked on his own vomit because the uh. ambulance didn't turn him to a side. Um, so he died as of, of asphyxia because he had taken too many sleeping pills. I and, mean, yeah. It's 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 just sad, and and you know it, it it seemed like it might have been coming. I remember a quote that Pete Townsend once made in his last like high profile gig at the li at the Isle of Wight in 1970. Pete Townsend remembered they both the Who played there too, and he remembered seeing Jimmy, and he just remembered actually like thanking 
himself thanking God that like he was in good physical condition hmm. because he saw that the way Jimmy looked and he's just like, you know, he looks, he looks like he's on the verge of death. He looked terrible. He'd obviously been run down, you know, what is it? You know, it's the weight of expectations. It's, you know, all these hangers on people making yeah, demands on you, stuff. these people yeah. making political demands on you, things like that. That kind of, that kind of stuff can drive anyone to, to, to despair. And of course, the other thing that was driving him nuts, no doubt was his, his indecision and his inability to figure out how he was going to follow up Electric Ladyland. And, of course, what happened, of course, when he died is the, the old joke that Robert Criscow made about the doors is, you know, all these compilations that came out after Jim Morrison died. He's like, well, you know what? That's what you get for dying on your record label. <laughs> um, that's what happened with Jimmy. You know, the, all of the material that he had been working on that had, you'd say, maybe like 75, 85 percent close to completion of an album. Album, another double album uh, it got parceled out on you know a whole passel of records first one was the cry of love uh, and then there was war heroes rainbow bridge crash landing all of these things basically you know you know the first one might may have been seen as valid even though it wasn't his original vision because he was going for a double album they only released a single record um but then, you know then it more and more began to feel just like crass exploitation. Like, you know, let's just milk as much money out of this guy as we can while we can. Of course, what they didn't realize is that Jimmy was going to live forever. And so, like, this is music that people would be willing to pay for for a long time in the future. Um, but once the Hendrix family, you know, got control of the uh, estate, and the, the the music, they compiled what you know was sort of an educated guess with Eddie Kramer's input uh, as to what that final album might have looked like. And you can never treat it as his actual final album. He didn't finally make those decisions. I'm sure things would have been different. The running order might have changed. There would have been different overdubs and mixes. But what we're left is, at least in the version that I was first familiar with it, is First Rays of the New Rising Sun. That's the experience Hendrix version that came out in the late 1990s uh, and i will just come right off the bat here and say that i i've always wanted to love this album and i never have i i think there are individual moments on it that are excellent there are some great songs i love who doesn't love dolly dagger all right Easy Rider, Drifting, uh, Nightbird Flying, Nightbird Flying in particular, and Angel. Those two are classics. But then there's just a lot of stuff that just doesn't make sense. I don't think Beginnings is good. Stepping Stone. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, are you going to fight me on this one, Jane? Oh, I absolutely 100% will. Uh, beginnings, especially. Put your, put your dukes up, baby. All right, go for it. So at, like, again, I love his use of rhythm. What It's, it's uh, you know, purely musical track, no vocals. And he switches it up around like the one fifteen minute again to kind of harking back to Spanish Castle Magic to that tango rhythm. And I love that so much.
it sounds like a really fun jam, but it's a jam. It's not a song. And that's my criticism, I suppose. I would also say that uh, I think, you know, I've had this conversation online a couple of times. I would say that, hey, baby, New Rising Sun, I, it's, I think one of the most beautiful songs ever written. Uh, and I'm so like, I, that's, I think this album for me, especially because, you know, I, I listen to war heroes more times than any human being probably should, um, <laughs> which I think is why beginnings is one of my absolute favorite songs, but because this, you know, we've beginnings, Dolly Dagger, um, room full of mirrors, angel, Isabella, which is a big one for me. Cause that, that ending and like the woo Isabella, like it's so much fun. And it's like it's a you know it's like writing writing home when the to someone you're gonna come back to them when the war is over. But it's fun, but it's sad, but it's also fun, <laughs> which is hard to do. Hey, baby, where do you coming from? Well, she looked at me and smiled and looked at the space. I'm coming from the land of a new rising sun. Then I said, hey, baby, where you trying to go to? Then she says, I'm going to spin, spread around this mind. And it just like, I think that this album, especially, and you know, we get into a lot of the other material because we've got, you know, one of the posthumous uh, albums that came out. Another one is South, South, uh, South Southern Delta, which has, I think, Midnight and, um, you know, a bunch of other tracks where you just get the sense of just like how the way that. Hendrix played with, you know, I, I made that point a bar about how Hendrix did that, that Led Zeppelin thing about, you know, playing like you're falling down, a, a, you know, the stairs or something like that. Um, you know, there's a song on South Southern Delta, The Stars That Play With Laughing Sam Dice. That was released in his lifetime. That was the B-side of Burning of the Midnight Lamp, actually. Excellent. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things is like because I listen to so much of the posthumous material, I've spent a lot of time recently kind of putting those albums back together. Yeah. I think that, you know, going back to First Rays, I think that that was an album. I I love it. I love it. I think it's because I think all of these pieces make such sense to me. I love that it starts out with Freedom. Freedom, then Isabella, and it just is such a, it's a good album just to listen to straight through. Like, I love Stepping Stone, and I think, like, it just, it's it works so well just as an album, which I, for me, as not a big, like, album person, is rare. Maybe I have, like, bizarre fanboy critiques, right? So, Hey Baby, <laughs> New Rising Sun, good song, but 
unfortunately, I know the original version, which is only finally released on the uh, West Coast Seattle Boy box set, which is this incredible, sparkling, instrumental, crazy fusion of like, and the gods made love and uh, Little Wing or um, Wait Until Tomorrow, something yeah. like uh, that off of Axis. It's this incredible version that comes from, I guess, like December 68. So it's after, it's after Ladyland, but it's like still in that mode. That to me is just one of the most transcendent instrumental moments of Jimi Hendrix's career. And it's also a studio creation. Like he's clearly spending hours and hours of time to get those sounds. And then the Hey Baby, New Rising Sun, the version that's on first phrase, it just feels like it was almost like he dashed it off in the studio. You know, like it feels like it was a live take or something like that. Like it, there wasn't a lot of thought put into it. Now, this is, the set, as I said, the kind of fanboy critique that, that, that gets kind of annoying. I understand it because it's like, well, you know, listen, you know, 99% of actual music listeners aren't going to care about crap like that. I think one thing that, that maybe I can get across that people will understand is that what uh, makes me f- uh, less inclined to like this material is that I just don't see the same level of ambition uh, as you do on something like Electric Ladyland. I don't, where, where's the giant voodoo child epic with a 14 minute blues psychopathically awesome like you know, extravaganza where's 1983 or where's like you know that inspired cover frankly like all along the watchtower or something like that they, 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 it, there's there's a lot that is very good but it's all in one mode he is kind of going back to a kind of a more sort of hard rocked up r&b sound and it's good it serves him well i love isabella and freedom obviously these are good songs but nightbird flying and angel for example appeal to me precisely because they deviate from that they're not that kind of uh, approach nightbird flying is is a much more kind of a poppy frankly approach and then angel of course is one of his most famous ballads i I mean angel is is so famous that um it's probably the only posthumous hendrix song that is as well known as the stuff that he's done before angel came down from heaven yesterday Stayed with me just long enough to rescue me And she told me a story yesterday About the sweet love between the moon and the deep blue sea Then she spread her wings high over me She said she's gone And I said fly on my Fly on through the sky. But I might actually like it even more in his original kind of acoustic guitar in my hotel room demo uh, which is again one of those things that you can only find if you're an obsessive collector on one of the boxed sets Scott? I um, I, I like a whole lot of stuff on First Rays of the New Rising Sun um, and at the same time I, I think Jeff's point that there's not like these transcendent sort of songs or uh, sort of a real a real focused set of songs and again you don't, you don't know how these things would have ended up uh, we, we can't know 
That said, there's a lot of very good here, a lot of very good. So maybe it depends on what your expectations are, or in Jeff's case, how much you know about where these songs originated and, and the number of times they, they maybe morphed and changed. But there's a lot of very good here. Freedom, it's a very, very good song. Uh, it's a great song, in fact, I would say. Um, and, and Jane had mentioned far earlier in, in the in the show, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan is a, is a direct acolyte of, of Hendrix. And you, of oh, course, yeah. can, can hear that as you go through the catalog. Listening to Freedom, it's actually odd. I heard more Jimmy Vaughan, Stevie Ray's brother, uh, in the guitar playing on, on Freedom. And, and they're brothers, so they probably learned from the same place. So it's not all that surprising. But slightly different, uh, a little different, uh, the guitar tone and some of the solos. I'm freedom. That's a great, great track. You got my heart, speak electric water. You got my soul, screaming and hollering. You know the hook my girlfriend. You know the drugstore ma'am. Well, I don't need it now. I'm just trying to slap it out of her hand. Dolly Dagger, we've all mentioned this one. It's one of his best songs. Uh, it's going to make my top five. Uh, these funky, chunky riffs, a great groove to it. Um, and and there's there's maybe even some some like disco type uh, music that maybe originated in in some of the some of those grooves and and, and the riffs of, of Dolly Dagger. I'm on team team Jane for beginnings. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful song. Um, Earth Blues, uh, late. Uh, this is this is essentially a, a double album, I guess. Where there's 17, 18 tracks. Uh, Earth Blues, uh, this soul drenched rocker. I think was very, uh, very of the times. Right, it fit in very well with what was happening as he was putting some of this stuff together for for possible album inclusion. And so, yeah. Um, and, and Jeff mentioned too, Angel. Yeah, I think that probably is. I, I I'm thinking back. I have no idea, but I, I think I didn't know until. Uh, until doing a bit more research, that was a, a a song released after his death. That that one is so well known; it just seemed to be one that was from his his career while he was alive. But no, it's here. Uh, beautiful, beautiful ballad. So there, there's just a lot of really good stuff here. I, I don't know if there's like truly excellent, but it's it's well. I mean, you're not going to be disappointed, and it's well worth a listen because these songs were uh, were in forms in which. Obviously, those who put it together were able to, to sort of round things out. It might not have been exactly what Hendrix would have done. But we get pretty close, and there's a lot of really good stuff here. So what do you do with an artist who has such an incredibly vast afterlife like Jimi Hendrix? You know, after 1970, after the release of these, uh, you know, these, these, these last few recorded sessions, or at least, you know, what would we see of them in the early 70s? You'd have thought, well, that's it. Jimi Hendrix is tapped out. No, my friend. No, my friend. And in fact, this is where you, <laughs> Jimi Hendrix released four albums during his lifetime. Let's just say five or six if you want to include uh, you know, Cry of Love or War Heroes. And then all of a sudden, there are 61 subsequent flipping albums <laughs> that come out after this point because the archives are endlessly rateable and there's just so much stuff to talk about and choose from that it's 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 hopeless and it's pointless to try to spend time doing it here you'd be bored and you know uh, frankly a lot of it is redundant i mean unless you are if you are a true train spotting fan then yes 
go get stages, which is that four CD box set with four different concerts of four different years of Jimmy's career. It has one from 67, 68, 69, and 70. Fine. Uh, you know what? I've listened to it. It's actually listen. If you like Jimi Hendrix, you like Jimi Hendrix live, you're going to like that. I mean, I'd say the same thing about the BBC Sessions disc. I actually think that's a lot more worthy because I think the he played a lot of really interesting stuff and with more discipline and tightness on the BBC Sessions because, of course, he's recording for the Beeb, you know, and, you know, those guys in their white jackets and, you know, like, you know, and, you know, their, their, their very thick Coke bottle glasses weren't going to put up with any sort of, you know, you know rigmarole. So uh, he, he gave a lot of really cool and very disciplined performances for the Beeb and you know during 1967 in particular um the live stuff maybe we can address briefly at the end of the show but there's one outtake album in particular one posthumous release in particular tellingly that was released when his estate was controlled by alan douglas who was this guy who would actually like you know overdub members of the, was it the knack was it the knack scott do you remember oh, we, we, i don't know i don't know they, he overdubbed members of the Knack onto uh, Jimi Hendrix tracks because he thought Mitch Mitchell wasn't doing a good enough job <laughs> on drums. Um, this is kind of famous. Uh, you know That was the way Alan Douglas treated Jimi Hendrix's estate. But what he did do is he, he put together, he compiled and released one absolutely magnificent album posthumously. And this was actually all the way into the early 90s. Yeah. Um, uh, that tellingly has remained in print and that the Hendrix family continue to keep in print. And the name of that album is blues this gets back to uh something i was talking about earlier that, that people actually rejected the idea of Jimi hendrix as a blues musician for some bizarre and inexplicable reason uh, but that couldn't have been ever further from the truth Jimi hendrix was the spirit of the blues and this is just 11 songs it's like 75 minutes and i cannot recommend it highly enough I don't know if it would make my top two albums at the end of this show, but I think it would make my top three if you asked me. Do any of you guys have any thoughts about blues? Because I know I know for a fact that some of you do. I I, I love this album. I especially because I think that one, the version here of Catfish Blues is the finest version of that song I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. uh, same here that you know. There have been a couple of, of Hendrix posthumous albums that have come out more recently with different versions of Manish Boy, but this is my favorite because it's so snappy. And it was funny because I went back and li listened to the original version. I was like, I don't like this as much. Like, but the way he does that with like the bass riff, uh, to, like about a minute in, that just is like do 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 like just the way that is built and structured. It's so snappy and so musical like jam 292 which is just a jam it's just like jimmy billy cox a pianist and a drummer and that's it 
and Jimmy just goes on like it starts out and I like imagining that like Jimmy is like okay I'm just gonna go like this but he can't restrain himself and it, may, just, it may be the best song on the album actually oh, yeah. fantastic and it just is like you know you get a 12 minute version of Hear My Train a coming the and, best version ever actually oh. by, by, by general fan consensus that's it that's the one <laughs> I mean that's basically like oh that's what that song is there's no you don't need to do another one This album, you know, this is the one where it's funny because I'm like, you know, if I had to introduce Jimi Hendrix to someone, where would I start? And honestly, in some ways, I feel like I would give someone, are you experienced Electric Ladyland and this? And be like, I think that that's basically what you need. Like, if you just had to start out there, you know, I would love to give them the full BBC sessions because I happen to love Jimmy. The fact of how he burns down Sunshine of Your Love every time he does it. I, I'm obsessed with, but if I had to just start someone out with Hendrix, this is one of the albums I'd give them. I think that it's very telling that this album includes duplicates of two songs. You get two versions of Hear My Train to Come and you get two versions of Red House and it doesn't feel like you're repeating a single thing. Uh, and, and again, we're dealing with blues changes. Blues changes, of course, the, infam the infamous nature of blues changes is that they are often repetitive. They fall into tropes. They fall into grooves. They're, they're, they're set patterns. And yet Jimmy's endless, endless inventivity on these songs is a, a miracle to see. And the thing that makes it more miraculous than that even is that these are all – Mostly, I mean, there were again like a couple of them are live performances, but most of them were just outtakes. It's just him jamming, you know, like when I don't have a song to record. Oh, there's a red house over yonder, baby. Oh, that's where my baby stayed. I ain't home to see my baby. Uh, 
Or, you know, like, yeah, I'm, you know, I've, I've done that 60th take on all on the watchtower and I'm tired <laughs> of trying to get Brian Jones to play the piano correctly. All right, let's record Manish Boy. Like, you know, that is just amazing. The, the alternate version of Voodoo Child, remember the, the great 14 minute long blues version that's on Electric Ladyland. Well, they did two take, or I think like, two or three takes of it. The, the third take is the one that's on the album. And this is a fusion of the first two takes. And it's amazing. Uh, it's it's almost as good as the the one that you you got on the album. I could listen to to him just playing blues changes forever, and this kind of goes back to the thing that I said right at the start of the show. And the reason I could listen to him play this stuff forever is because no one sounds like Jimi Hendrix. The man just has a way of playing a guitar that makes you feel like he is he's absolutely in command of your ears and your soul. Nobody, nobody handled the instrument like him in rock music, and nobody sounds like him, and nobody sang with the spirit and the soul of him. And the thing is that you know, maybe very telling for a guy who always affected to hate his own singing voice, he sang with his instrument, his guitar, just as eloquently as he ever sang with his voice, and that's why everybody needs to hear blues. It's good, Absolutely. yeah. It, it, the acoustic version of "Hear My Train a Coming." which uh, kicks off the album, is really good. You guys already mentioned Catfish Blues. Um, the Bleeding Heart solo is a, is a thing of beauty, which uh, old uh, Elmore James uh, track. Uh, Jane mentioned Manish Boy, which is great. That's a, to the rhythm section there. It's just locked in uh, front to back. Yes, um, the blues is, 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 I don't know if it's a starting point, but it's, it's certainly worth tracking down. All right. Well, I mean, the last thing to talk about when we talk about Jimi Hendrix is the massive, truly massive, almost like depressively massive hassle of live concerts that you can get from him, uh, not only including things like the BBC sessions, which are sort of semi-live, I suppose, but then there's, you know, his performances at, you know, Monterey. There's, you know, his stages, that four-CD box set, him at the Fillmore East, him at Woodstock. Hey, you know what we haven't mentioned once during this show is Jimi Hendrix playing at Woodstock. You know the reason we haven't mentioned it? Because it was overrated. It's not that great. Like It's not a good show. I'd rather like I've the album of him at the Miami Pop Festival, I think is very good. Um, I think that like it's it's funny because so much um, if you have, you know, one of my father's prized possessions, if you have the giant velvet record box set, um, which contains a bunch of his performances at the Olympia Theater, which ble- I believe. That, is- you know what that is? That's stages. And that's what I have. It's stupendous. Also, because it includes him doing Johnny Be Good. Yep. Which I know is like roach or whatever. It's still awesome. Him just being like, all right, we're going to do a little loose jam. I don't know. Johnny be good. And you're like, oh, okay. There you go. We got this other thing called, um, I don't know, what I could do a little loose jam type of thing. It's Johnny be good. What the hell? <laughs>
I mean, here's the funny thing. Like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna double down on my heresy. He played far better live versions of the Star Spangled Banner than the one that he did in Woodstock. All right, and he'd actually been playing that for over a year and a half at that point. Yeah. So, you know, people were shocked. Like, oh wow, Jimmy's doing the Star Spangled Banner. What's so I was like, you people, did you ever even see him in concert prior yeah. to this yeah. moment? No, and, and, and far better and far more eloquent for that matter. I don't know. I don't want to be like the guy who's like crapping on like all these old boomer memories. But like, yeah, I'm just <laughs> saying that like it, it's an overrated thing. But there are a lot of great concerts. I guess like, you know, I, I know Scott doesn't really know as much about this as, as you or I do, Jane. I would recommend like if you've got the coin to plunk down or I don't know, maybe it's cheaper if you get it digitally or something like that. Go find Jimmy Planet Winterland. In late 1968, just after Electric Ladyland has been completed, but maybe a couple of days before it's going to be released, it's a great four CD set. It's curated. It's he played two shows every night, three nights in a row. So it's six shows, and they've curated the best from you know to fill four CDs, and uh, it's the it's the original experience. So it, it's it's Mitch and Noel. Uh, it's really wonderful. And I think one of the things that you learn when you listen to these live albums is how different live Hendrix was from studio Hendrix. Most of the stuff on Axis and Electric Ladyland never got played live. It's exactly one song from Electric Ladyland that gets played during these entire series of concerts, and that's Voodoo Child, the slight return version. Everything else is, is either like, you know, blues covers, unreleased songs, you know, Hear My Train of Comment, or, you know, stuff from the original, from the, from the original album. Album, uh, but it doesn't matter because Jimmy's magnetic, and you know he, he's uh, sometimes a little sloppier alive than he is in the studio. But uh, again, there's no mistaking that guitar or the magnetism of the presence that he brought. I'll listen to that man play any damn day of the of the week. Absolutely, and I think um, you know there have been a bunch of recent releases, but I think the live work. I would say that. You know, if you can get stages, if you can get hit, you know, Miami Pop Festival, if you can get him in Atlanta also, um, there are a lot of live albums besides Woodstock, uh, as Jeff so eloquently put it, it's just not that great. You know, I think that that the live work is just so good. And especially, you know, if you if you are a YouTube person like myself, like you can go see, you know, him live in Stockholm or just going back and just seeing some of his televised performances, um, him on um, Dick Cavett's show, yeah. they are having a conversation, but I'm pretty sure both of them are having a conversation with different people. From the- <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, they totally, they, like they both beamed in from alternate dimensions. It's so and weird. I'm, you know, I love Dick Cavett. Um, I'm, I'm so glad he's still with us. And I, if I ever met Dick Cavett, I would just demand 45 minutes of explanation of what exactly they were talking about. <laughs> I don't even know if he remembers, man. I think they were probably both on something at that yeah, time. Yeah, and it just is like, I, well, especially, you know, Jimmy just being this person who in any room was so brilliantly different from everyone else. Like the number of pictures I have saved of Jimi Hendrix just because it's just Jimi Hendrix looking cool, Jimi Hendrix looking awesome, Jimi Hendrix looking extra cool. And that, that performance is such a, like, that show is such an example of that because you're just like, I don't know what you're talking about, Jimmy. I have no idea, but you look amazing. You're great. <laughs> All right, Scott. And I think that's where we'll leave this, the political beach look at Jimi Hendrix. We come to the point of the episode in which each of us gives two albums from the artist that you should own, five tracks that you need to hear. 
Turn it over to our guest, senior politics reporter at Vox, Jane Coaston. Jane, your two albums and your five songs. Uh, so my two albums would be, as I said, blues. And then actually, you know, I think I'd be, I would have to be uh, Electric Ladyland. And then, um, sorry, the second, how many tracks? You get five, although sometimes if you ask Jeff nicely, he'll give you six. Yeah, right. yeah uh, we're not going to be sticklers about this, <laughs> I, I, especially for Jimmy. This is hard as hell. Okay. Um, oh, man. All right. So I have to start, I think, Hey Baby, uh, Gypsy Eyes, Beginnings, uh, Manish Boy, but the blues version, Catfish Blues. I know that's five already, but I have to do Still Raining, Still Dreaming, 1983, um, I don't live today, and I know. I, I know. You I, just I, you just went to like nine. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're okay. asking like it's like okay, Jane. You've been alive for nearly 33 years. Let's like try to compartmentalize those 33 years of listening to Jimi Hendrix into five songs. I can't wait, wait, listen, lady. I've been alive for for 39 years, and I somehow boiled it down to five. But no, I completely understand. And in fact, I'll probably throw in a sixth myself. All right, go, Jeff. Uh, well, no, actually, I go. I go Jeff third. Goes last. This is yes, Scott's turn now. Yeah. So, uh, my my two albums are are uh, the predictable <laughs> ones, perhaps. Uh, are you experienced and uh, Electric Ladyland? I mean, if you're going to only have two and, and want the uh, full experience, so to speak, uh, those are the two. So, five tracks. Cut it down to five. Uh, Crosstown traffic from uh, Electric Ladyland. Uh, Spanish Castle Magic. He's on a list. Dolly Dagger from the uh, posthumous um, work. I think Gypsy Eyes from Electric Lady Lands on my list. And um, the title track from Are You Experienced is also one that you really need to hear. Uh, Jeff, yours. All right. Well, see, I'm going to take I'm going to take my host's privilege, not with the songs, actually, this time, but with the albums. So obviously, Are You Experienced in Electric Ladyland? Duh. If you're actually talking about his original core discography, those are the two. It's not like Axis Bold as Love is a bad record in any way. But I mean, geez, if you make us do this, that's what it is. What I will also, though, do is, is, is say that if you want to explore the sort of the post the posthumous history of Jimi Hendrix. You need to have blues. And if you're going to look for live albums, I, I would really strongly recommend that if you're going to get just maybe like a smaller thing, go get the live at the Fillmore East album. It's a great alternative to Band of Gypsies. Um, much more entertaining, I think, because it, it's a much broader view of what he was playing on those nights. And the Winterland set. Now, you can get like a one-disc version, but come on, go get the four-CD one, you know, Take a plunge. It's Jimmy. You're not going to regret it. Those five songs, though, ah, this is impossible. So I, I just, you know, I just held my nose and I, I made impossible choices. My first pick is "Lover Confusion" off of "Are You Experienced." I just think it's something that exemplifies psychedelic Jimmy, you know, sort of British psychedelic Jimmy, where he was, you know, a man who was the stuck between two worlds: the American blues rock world and sort of the British freak rock world, and he perfectly managed to to, to bridge that gap. That's the song. Second one would be if six was which may be one of his greatest protest songs ever in his own way when he says that line i'm the one who's got to die but it's my time to die so let me live my life the way i want to you know and that's 
It's basically the entire Jimi Hendrix mantra. Uh, the third one I choose is from Electric Ladyland. That's 1983. A merman I should turn to be, which I always love. I always love the little dot, 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 a merman. You know, like 1983, <laughs> well, that's a year. And then all of a sudden we, we're starting talking about Aquaman. Um, this prog rock epic, I think it's just a magnificent piece of work. And, uh, and all 14 minutes of it will transport you from the, the top of uh, the waves to the bottom of the ocean. Th- the fourth one would be House Burning down it's uh one of the last songs on electric ladyland comes right before all along the watchtower don't understand why it isn't as famous as all along the watchtower i think it is just as propulsive and just as relevant and then frankly it remains relevant to this day and i guess the final one i'll mention is angel off of uh the cry of love or first race of the new rising sun however you care to you know define that um but i'll be a super extra double nerd and say that the demo version of angel that jimmy recorded in his hotel room before he actually went into the studio to do the final version that actually might be the the really truly definitive cut uh just because i think it, it, it features his most beautiful singing ever for a guy who didn't like his own voice and was always so self-conscious about his own voice one of the fun things about listening to his demos is that he wasn't singing for anyone else he wasn't afraid that anyone else was ever going to hear this music and so he was very unselfconscious about it there and uh, his voice is just an absolute thing of beauty on one of his most beautiful songs and sure enough this morning comes to me with silver wings silhouette against the glow of the child sunrise and as the bluebirds and the sparrows envy me she says I love you little boy and today you shall fly she kissed me once and the feeling so good she made me cry and now We can fly together And I said fly on my sweet angel Fly on through the sky And there we are, the Political Beats look at the life and career and music of Jimi Hendrix. We thank our returning guest, Jane Coaston, senior politics reporter at Vox, focusing on the GOP conservatism, the far right, white nationalism. You can find her on Twitter at CJane87 and the work, of course, at Vox.com. Jane, thanks so much for joining us once again. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Jeff, uh, we head into the Christmas season as we record this, but I think we've got one more. I, we may have a very Roxy Christmas. Yes. Uh, find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram, at Scott Bertram on Twitter, reminding you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at NationalReview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews. Join the conversation on Twitter at uh, our handles or the show at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.